afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Joining us right now is Dr. David Penault. He is author of The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. He is also professor of religious studies at Santa Clara University, where he directs the Arabic, Islamic, and Middle Eastern Studies program. David has joined us before uh, and brings a unique perspective to this whole discussion of Muslim-Christian relations and an intimate familiarity with Islam, as well as deep commitment uh, to the faith. And the book is called The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. And David, it's great to have you back here again. Thanks. Thank you, Al. And it's really an honor to be back with you again and also with all your video audience. Uh, I want you to explain again the title uh, of the book, because I think that helps orient us to your own experience and background. Yes, thank you. Um, so I should explain that the title of the book comes from an, uh, a phrase in the Indonesian language in Southeast Asia, Sarambi Mecca, that is Mecca's front porch, which is actually a geographical reference. It refers to the Indonesian nickname for Aceh. That's a province located in the northern tip of the island of Sumatra, and it's that part of Indonesia that lies geographically closest to the Arabian Peninsula. And for centuries, Aceh has been the embarkation point, the jump-off point, for Southeast Asian Muslims sailing on the pilgrimage to Mecca. Now, Achenese Muslims pride themselves on their fervent Islamic devotion, and Aceh today is the only province in Indonesia that's governed by Sharia law. But Aceh also has a small Christian minority population that has experienced discrimination and sometimes violent persecution at the hands of the Muslim majority. Anyway, when I was doing field work there a few years ago, I attended Mass one morning in a Catholic church in Aceh's capital city. And I arrived uh, shortly before Mass began, and I saw a procession making its way along the center aisle to the altar priests, acolytes, and worshipers. And leading all of them was a young girl, and she was proudly holding high a crucifix, big and bronze. And that moment left a lasting visual impression on me, Hmm. the sight of the cross bearing Christ's body, being lovingly and even defiantly made visible right on Mecca's front porch as a Christian community persisted in its rituals of faith, even in the midst of oppression and persecution. And that moment has been one of many in my own career in Islamic studies that has strengthened my own faith as a Catholic Christian. And uh, this to see uh, the crucified Christ uh, within the geographic geographic proximity to a community that, uh, in many ways, uh, well, certainly they deny Christ's uh, uh, divinity. They also deny the crucifixion, don't they? That's correct. You see, and that's um, part of what I hope to accomplish uh, in writing this book. That is, I think the study of Islam can really help Christians be reminded of what is unique in the truth of its own faith, because on on the one hand, Islam respects Jesus as a prophet, and it refers to him as a Muslim. But on the other hand, um, Islam and the Quran deny that Jesus is the Son of God, 
um, they deny that he's divine. They they divine they deny uh, the fact that he was a member of the Trinity, and Islam also denies that Jesus was ever crucified. So these these are fundamental differences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, where the, the sources uh, of the Quran and why why Islam from its very beginning. Uh, seems to have had a distorted understanding of both Judaism and Christianity. How do you account for that? Well, um, a couple of things about the life of the Prophet Muhammad are very important to keep in mind. First of all, uh, Muhammad grew up in a tradition that in Arabic is called the Jahiliya. Jahiliya literally means the age of ignorance, meaning the ignorance of Islam. It's a term that appears in the Quran itself, and the term Jahiliya refers to the pagan polytheistic religion, society, and values of the pre-Islamic Arabian Peninsula, where Muhammad grew up. Uh, He was dissatisfied with the tribalism, the violence between different clans, and the fact that each clan had loyalty to different deities. Um, But in his own uh, travels as a young man, and keep in mind that Muhammad grew up um, in his early adulthood. He was a uh, traveling businessman. He was a merchant. Mm -hmm. In his travels, he encountered individual members of uh, the Jewish and Christian community because there was a minority population of Jews and Christians scattered in Arabia during the time Muhammad was growing up. Now, keep in mind that according to the Islamic sources, Muhammad himself was illiterate. So he was not reading a Bible, Mm. um, but he picked up impressions of Judaism and Christianity and then interpreted them uh, through the lens of his own understanding and his own um, beliefs. And uh, I think that uh, when it comes to understanding Muhammad's picture of Jesus, I think the the most important thing to keep in mind with regard to how Muhammad understood Christ is the fact that Muhammad consistently viewed the life of Christ through the lens of his own, that is, Muhammad's personal experience. And Muhammad's life was one where he was um, rejected in his preaching, but ultimately Muhammad triumphed politically and militarily. And um, Muhammad interpreted the lives of of other prophets, people that he viewed as prophets, through that lens. And I think that that's key to understanding Islam's rejection of the crucifixion of Christ, because um, the Quran itself states that Allah rescues his prophets, his messengers, the believers, and causes them to triumph in this world as well as in the next. And so saying that Christ... Um, was humiliated, suffered, appeared to be weak, any of those things, um, I think that that amounted to something that would have damaged Muhammad's self-image as a triumphant politician and conqueror. Christians, of course, see the crucifixion as the portal to the resurrection, so to speak, and which is ultimately triumphant, but they couldn't get there mm-hmm. through the crucifixion. Yeah, yeah. You see... One of the things that I emphasize in all the courses that I, I teach here at Santa Clara University and all the presentations I give 
one of the things that I emphasize is the fact that the Quran never mentions Jesus in connection with suffering. Interesting. And yeah. that, again, points us to a key difference between Islam and Christianity, because whereas Islam tends to emphasize God's majesty, Allah's invulnerability, Allah's power, what we as Christians believe is in a God that is willing to make himself vulnerable mm -hmm. through the Incarnation, yeah. that is a God that is willing to take a chance, a God that, is, that loves us so much that he sends his own Son into the world to go through all the risks and all the vulnerabilities that are associated with the human condition. And I, and I cannot emphasize that enough, that you know, what is um, unique in Christianity is knowing the fact that whatever difficulties we go through in life, and I think that you live long enough and you come to realize that suffering is part of this life here on earth. Mm -hmm. But whatever I go through, I can take consolation in the fact that I know that Christ has been there before me. He's been a pioneer in suffering before me. And whatever we go through, we're not alone in that, that Christ is by our side in suffering. You know, this is... But, but from a Muslim's point of view, then, a God who was vulnerable is a God who is weak and, and not worthy of uh, adoration? Well, exactly. In other words, from, uh, from the Islamic point of view, um, the prophets are associated, you know, they're associated with being the bearer of God's message, and that message is construed as uh, invincible. And so anything that is said or claimed about, um, well, say, Christ crucified in weakness, as St. Paul reminds us, um, that would be seen as a kind of insult uh, to the invulnerable majesty of Allah. Uh, so, and the idea of guarding the majestic reputation of Allah is something that's a very sensitive issue. Okay, so then the cross becomes a real stumbling block for Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And it's central to our understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, the Muslims I've been familiar with have always been very respectful of Jesus. Uh, they have him, hold him in high esteem, uh, but they regard our uh, calling him God in human flesh as blasphemous. Uh, how do you go about speaking with Muslims about Jesus when, in fact, they affirm very positive things about him, but they fundamentally misunderstand his, uh, well, his identity? Right, right. You see, in my experience, actually, in the whole realm of interface dialogue, when people from different religions come together to talk about belief, I have always found that it's much easier, for example, to have a conversation, say, with Buddhists, uh, because there you don't have uh, competing claims about <laughs> right. the same figure. Right, you know? right. Yeah, um, and it's much more sensitive when you have Christians and Muslims get together, as you can well imagine. Um, let me tell you, and I mention this in the book, in the Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch, um, here's... here's 
um, one way that I would not want to go about it. I have seen so many times in interfaith gatherings that I have been pulled into, and I use that term because you can see it over the years, I've become less enthusiastic about this, but too often what Christians have sometimes tried to do is to minimize the differences between Islam and Christianity out of a kind of goodwill hope of making sure that you you don't have any bigotry, discrimination, etc. Well, of course, that's an admirable goal, but I think it's a completely wrong-headed way of going about it. Um, I think it's much better in terms of how to talk uh, to Muslims about Christ to simply state frankly what it is we believe, what are the beliefs, and why is it that we hold these to be so important. Uh, Hold it there, David. We'll be right back. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. David Pinault. He's the author of The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. He's Professor of Religious Studies at Santa Clara University, where he directs the Arabic, Islamic, and Middle Eastern Studies program, talking about uh, interreligious dialogue with Muslims right now and the importance of not minimizing uh, the profound difference that exists between the um, Catholic faith's understanding of Jesus and the Quran's understanding, uh, or at least the Islamic understanding. So, to what degree is there are there Quranic references that can help us in our conversation with Muslims? We st- we start out by saying what we believe and and why. Where does it go from there? Well, I think from there. Um what I actually what I try to do um, in conversations with Muslims uh, is uh, to um, ask them to think about okay, you know, what are the fundamental um, distinctions between um, people who consider themselves spiritual and people who do not? What are the fundamental differences between um, people who regard themselves, say, as religious, and um, people who are atheists or skeptical. And I, I think that um, there's a, a very good um, discussion in a, in a book by the Christian thinker, um, John Macquarie, um, and what uh, Macquarie talks about the fact that um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the fundamental question in the end is whether you consider the ground of existence, the source out of which all things come, whether, whether you consider it to be indifferent to us or whether you consider mm. it to be gracious. And when he uses, uses the term gracious, what he means is a source of grace, a source of honor and blessing. Okay? Yep. And there, when you touch on that, I mentioned to, to Muslims, when you touch on that, what you've done is you've reached some common ground with Muslims in the sense that um, Muslims, Jews, Christians can all agree in the notion that not only does God exist, but God wishes us well. God is benevolent. And so um, every chapter except one in the Quran begins with an invocation of Allah as gracious and merciful. Yes. And so in that sense, there's a common ground. Okay. Then the question is, how does that grace manifest itself? Of course, a Muslim will say, um, that it primarily comes through Scripture mm-hmm. and the Scripture-bearing prophets. 
and then what I try to point out is that for for us, for for us Christians in general and Catholics in particular, okay, that exposure to God's grace comes not primarily through a scripture, right, but through a person. Yeah. Okay. With all the richness of relationship that is implied by God's revelation in the form of a person, His divine Son. And so when I'm trying to uh, intrigue Muslims, that's what I'll emphasize, is the notion of a relationship with a person. It may not be something that will um, appeal to everyone, but again, what what I'm doing is making it very clear what we as Catholic Christians believe in. So the ultimate relationship that we can have to God in the Catholic faith, is a relationship to God uh, in the person of Christ. For them, it's the Koran, uh, a body of propositions. So we emphasize revelation as a person that we relate to, and they're left with propositions. Is that right? That's correct. And that also, by the way, explains something else, because as I often say to my students, you know, what you keep out the front door often comes flying in through the window. <laughs> and so, you know, since since people want relationship, in fact, and they're not satisfied simply with propositions, mm-hmm. I think that that explains the fervent devotion that you see in so many parts of the Islamic world, the fervent demo- devotion to the person of the Prophet Muhammad. That helps to explain, for example, the details of... Um, the current blasphemy law in the country of Pakistan, because there, according according to Ordinance uh, 295B-C, right, the penalty for dishonoring or questioning the Quran, okay, that's life imprisonment. But the penalty for questioning the honor of or or dishonoring Muhammad is the death penalty. Wow. You know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, theologically, that may not make much sense, but emotionally... I think it helps to explain um, how, as I said, people want relationships with persons. Well, there's an implicit recognition there that persons are to be more valued than propositions. Well, you know, as a Catholic Christian, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it, it gets a little complicated in the Islamic world. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, this is, this is fascinating. Uh I want to come back to the crucifixion, though. Um, How is the close of Christ's life presented in the Koran? Yes, and this is one of the most fascinating uh, riddles, really, puzzles, um, in Islamic theology. Because what the Koran says about the crucifixion is um, that Jesus was not killed or crucified, it was made to appear so to the onlookers, mm-hmm. okay? And um, now here we get into what's called the docetic crucifixion, and I talk about this uh, in some detail in the book. Um, and basically what this means is that um, it looked as if uh, Christ were crucified, um, but not really. And um, what so there are two things to this, two aspects to keep in mind. One is that the notion of a docetic crucifixion 
is something that had appeared as a notion centuries before in what is known as Gnosticism. Uh, a, there was a subset of um, individuals who honored Christ but were repelled by the notion that Jesus could become fully human with all the weakness associated with that. They, they, wanted, uh, they wanted a savior figure who would take us out of this world rather than a, f- a figure who would be fully involved with us in our sufferings in this world. And those are the Docetic Gnostics. That was mm-hmm. essentially a heresy that existed as early as the second century. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that that heresy persisted in the Near East right up through the time of the Prophet Muhammad. In other words, one of the things that I explore in the book is the fact that when Muhammad first began his preaching and had contact intermittently with Jews and Christians, there were two alternative Christologies circulating. Hmm. One, what we would call the Orthodox, that Jesus truly was crucified, and the other, the the Docetic. Muhammad went for choice B. And the, the interesting question is, why that alternative model of the crucifixion? And I think it goes back to what I said earlier. Because the Quran insists that it looked as if he were truly crucified, but in fact wasn't. Okay? And that fits with the model of what I call Allah's 11th hour rescue of the prophets. In other words, uh, Muhammad could not tolerate the thought of his predecessor, that is Jesus, whom Muhammad regarded as a fellow prophet and fellow Muslim. Muhammad couldn't tolerate the idea of Jesus being humiliated. Okay, because of the fact that Muhammad saw things through the lens of worldly triumph. Right, right. And so that, I think that that affected everything um, really profoundly in terms of how the Quran depicts the crucifixion. Um, now, what, uh, just curious here, I came across a group many years ago, and I, I know they're still around. I might get the pronunciation wrong, but the Ahmadiyyas. Yeah, the Ahmadiyyas, yeah. Ahmadiyyas. Uh, don't they yeah. have a different understanding of the crucifixion than most Muslims? Yes, they they sure do. Um, they go for what's called the swoon theory. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and uh, just to recap this briefly, the Ahmadis, also known as the Ahmadiyya, so what the Ahmadis say is that um, Jesus was crucified, but he did not die on the cross. Mm-hmm. They claim that he swooned, that he was temporarily unconscious, but that while he was still alive, he was taken down from the cross, um, and his followers looked after him until Jesus was um, well enough um, to get up and about again. And they also claimed that um, he traveled subsequently on foot uh, all the way to India. Okay. And they claimed that uh, he also preached in India, and he died and is buried in Kashmir. Um, okay. Keep in mind that the Ahmadis are a sect that is still active today. They were founded in the late 19th century in British India, I should mention, yeah. Yeah, by right. a British Indian Muslim. Okay. Um, the other footnote to this I should mention is that um, the Ahmadis also claim that um, <clears throat> there can be prophets after Muhammad, and Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, that's the founder of the movement after whom the Ahmadis are named, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed himself claimed 
to be a prophet. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, especially, um, both Sunnis and Shias um, tend to reject the Ahmadis completely as non-Muslims. Okay. Uh, and the, the Ahmadis have been subjected to very violent persecution, actually. Okay, okay. Um, so, to what are they a player today? I mean, what's their... St- relative strength uh, in, because they're very, my memory of them is that they were very big evangelizers or proclaimers, that they were big on converts. That's right, that's right. In fact, they've been very active as missionaries, um, including uh, in North America and the United States. Um, the, the way that they tend to present themselves is uh, to say that um, their primary message is one of peace, which is something that uh, very few people are going to object to. Um, it's uh, it, what they tend not to emphasize, of course, so much are the profound differences between right. their own views and those of their, um, uh, you know, their Sunni and Shia neighbors. In countries like um, Indonesia and in Pakistan, they've. Um, been subject to intense harassment and um, having their mosques uh, shut down or even burned. Um, So on the one hand, they do a lot of evangelizing among non-Muslims within the Islamic world. um, They've suffered a lot of persecution. Okay. David, can you stay with me another segment? Absolutely. Very good. My guest, Dr. David Fenault, the book, The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch, it's a Christian companion's, um, a Christian's companion for the study of Islam. We're trying to, again, try to get behind the eyes of Muslims and how they see uh, the Catholic faith. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. David Pinault, the book, The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. You were mentioning earlier uh, how what sometimes we deny at the door comes back to us through the window. And I'm thinking yeah. here of the Muslim uh, rejection of uh, uh, the person of Christ and that sense of strong personal relationship with God. Uh, and I've often been surprised at some of the language of uh, Muslim, more mystical writers, and some Sufi writers, where they seem to be talking quite personally about God. Uh, and I'm wondering, how, what do, does the Muslim orthodoxy think of those kind of mystical writings? Yes, well... Uh, that's been a point of considerable controversy. Uh, I would think that, I would say that, okay, first of all, some basic definitions. When we're talking about the Sufis, we're talking about the mystical dimension of Islam. And by mysticism, what I mean here is um, that aspect of religion that has to do with an individual person's uh, direct, immediate, and personal experience yeah. of God in this life without having to wait for the next life. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing about mysticism is that because of the fact that it posits the possibility of this kind of direct encounter, personal encounter with God in this life, is that that can have a way of uh, potentially sort of shortchanging or sidestepping or jumping around the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Right. And every world religion has some kind of 
authoritative hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Sufis in Islam have often been um, viewed with suspicion by the ulama, the, re- the religious scholars who are the guardians of the orthodox tradition. And part of it has to do, um, again, with this sense that the Sufis are creating an, an alternate hierarchy. But then there's also um, theological suspicion of the Sufis as well. That is, if you read Sufi literature, very often the Sufis describe the encounter with God uh, in terms of language that approaches um, what in Islamic theology is called ittihad. Ittihad means um, unification with God, becoming mm-hmm. one with God. And um, that's absolutely unacceptable according to Islamic orthodoxy. Uh, and so um, the Sufis would sometimes claim, well, it's not ittihad, it's what they call ittafal. Ittafal means um, getting into contact with. <laughs> and so you might say, well, it's just a difference of a word, but these these terms can become very important. Okay, um, but what it all testifies to, you know, to me, is the hunger that all of us have as created beings mm-hmm. to want to have a close, intimate relationship with our Creator, and. Um, and that's that's what you know. That's why I make that reference to you know. If you keep something out in the front door, then you know it's going to tend to come in through the window. You know, yeah. and so, in other words, um, every every religion, in its own way, um, is struggling to express a form of the truth. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author, of course, of you know, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. in his conversations with C.S. Lewis, conversations that helped the young C.S. Lewis become Christian, Tolkien talks about how, um, you know, we, we are instinctively storytellers. We are what Tolkien calls sub-creators. We, we are unconsciously imitating the true story told by God. And so, when C.S. Lewis said that he was disturbed that there are so many um, myths in different mythologies around the world that seem to allude to the notion of someone dying and rising from the dead, and he says, so, you know, does this mean that it's all just a kind of pretty lie? And Tolkien says, no, because we instinctively are oriented towards the truth, and consciously or unconsciously, we're imitating the one great storyteller, and that's God. And I think that that has perhaps um, something to tell us with regard to the Sufis' instinct for wanting that personal relationship with the divine person. Yeah, yeah. Would Sufis be more um, open to the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, the interesting thing is, and and you may remember, Al, that... um, I have a chapter on this in uh, my book, The yeah. Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch. Mm-hmm. Um, in the chapter on Sufism, I explore how, in fact, for many centuries, uh, not so much today for a variety of reasons, but for many centuries during the medieval period and also during the time of the Crusades, many Sufis were absolutely fascinated with the person of Jesus to a degree far beyond what you would have um, in Islam normally. Um, because in Islam, um, then and today, in Orthodox Islam, even though Jesus is respected as a prophet, you know, no one prays to Jesus. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is not the focus of devotion. But nonetheless, in the Middle Ages, for a number of centuries, the Sufis honored Jesus as a kind of model that is someone to imitate in life. And why is that? Because the Sufis said that Jesus lived like a dervish. That is, that <laughs> Jesus was a homeless wanderer. Okay? Yeah. And if you know anything about Sufism, you may be aware of the fact that the, the Sufi fakirs, the the dervishes, many of them were, you know, wandering holy people. Mm-hmm. And so, and and many, many Sufis um, would also not have families, they would not be married, and so um, they found Jesus, um, what they called the sunnah of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, in some ways they found that easier to imitate than the sunnah of Muhammad, who, as you know, had a total of, you know, 13 wives and a military leader and all the rest of that, <laughs> right, you know. Right. Uh, so a very different kind of model. <laughs> not really an ascetic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, not in that sense. Uh, when you look at the world today and Christian persecution going on, and, and your book uh, does look at this uh, Christian survival in Egypt and Yemen and in Pakistan, do you ever foresee a time in Christian-Muslim relations where a Christian uh, community could live in a, a Muslim-dominated uh, society and have full uh, liberty to preach the gospel, to make converts, uh, you know, to worship? Well, um, that's something to be desired, but I do not see the trends currently running in that direction. No, neither do in I. In other yeah. words, that, that, you see, the, the tendency has been, even under a relatively broad-minded and relatively tolerant Muslim society, the tendency has been, yes, to allow, say, a Christian minority population to exist, but only with the proviso that it keep a low profile and not preach the gospel. Right. right. And, um, and I think that um, the reason why the repression, the reason why the persecution directed against Christians has, if anything, been increasing, especially in countries uh, such as Egypt and Indonesia and so forth, as I talk about in the book. The reason why has to do with the fact that um, Islam, like any world religion, is not just a personal commitment, it's collective identity. And it's the collective identitarian dimension of Islam that is becoming emphasized more and more. In other words, contrary to what some people had fondly hoped, things like increased access to the internet, the computer, television, etc., that has not made us one happy world together. Mm -hmm. Instead, what has happened is many, many communities around the world have felt threatened by the outside world, and they have felt threatened by modernity. And in the face of that, they're looking for one way to shout no in one unified voice to all those outside forces. And so for people in the Islamic world, Muslim identity and especially Muslim identity in its visible markers, whether it's the hijab veil or the conspicuous beard, etc., mm-hmm. that's been the way to do that. And so in, in, in any situation like that, the Christian minority population becomes seen as an internal threat to Muslim collective identity. Hmm. So, this, so, um, so Muslims 
can live in a, a secular society, um, but a Muslim-dominated society cannot permit Christians to live out their faith uh, freely. Uh, you, you don't well, see that. This is part of the great irony, isn't it? Yeah. That I, I mean, I, I have, I have often encountered Muslims living in the United States who have told me privately how very grateful they are to be able to live in the United States where they can practice their Islamic faith freely. Um, and uh, some of them have said to me, you know, um, back home, you know, there'd be all these quarrels about which is the right form of Islam. You know, I mean, I have met, I have met Shias, I've met Ismailis in this country. I have met Ahmadis, whom we talked about earlier this this uh, interview, all living in the United States and mentioning to me how um, if they were back home in a country like Pakistan, for example, trying to live as Ahmadis or Shias or Ismailis, they'd be persecuted. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so they love living in the United States. Um, and, and I've often said to the Muslims I talk to, I just wish there was some way to export some of that tolerance back to Muslim countries, yeah. because yeah. there there's been a tremendous, tremendous uh, shortcoming. Uh, the experience of uh, Muslims in the West, w- w- do you ever think that would happen, that there's sufficient Muslim uh, experience in the West where they, uh, of pluralism, that you can imagine Muslim-dominated nations changing? Well, um, that's a very good question. The, okay, so, so here's something optimistic, first of all, that I can say, and that is that um, there are certainly uh, open-minded uh, Muslims who are trying to work out alternative ways of exploring what it means to be Muslim. Yeah. Those conversations are taking place in places like the United States, Canada, etc. Right, right. That's good. And the nice thing is they can do that without getting themselves killed. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. That's good. Um, the only thing is, um, as I mentioned in the book, I've had the dubious distinction in Yemen, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, and so forth, of interviewing militantly-minded Muslims in those countries and what they have told me is they're aware of the conversations going on in the United States, and they say to me things like, you tell the Muslims back there in America that they've been corrupted by the decadence right. that is American democracy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, 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 it's going to be a long struggle, and um, uh, it's, not, it's not clear at all how this is going to no, be No, it doesn't look like it's anywhere in the DNA uh, of Islam. To permit that, but well, the, the, see, that's part of the problem. That is part of the problem. You know that um, it, so often, militantly minded Muslims have pointed out to me things from behavior from the Sunnah of Muhammad, from the behavior of Muhammad himself, yep. that they can use to justify their authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. David, thanks once again for all your help. Great talking with you. Uh, as always, Al, it's a pleasure, a real privilege. Thank you. David Pinault is the author of The Crucifix on Mecca's Front Porch, uh, a Christian's companion for the study of Islam. I recommend it to you. It's great.